Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, Cynical listeners. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that Jeremy and I will be doing a live show with our friends from the China Institute in New York on Monday, October 9th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. We'll be chatting with Gary Liu, CEO of the South China Morning Post. Gary comes from the tech world. He was formerly CEO of Dig and before that was the head of Spotify Labs. We'll be talking to him about the challenges he faces, not only steering a venerable old newspaper in difficult times, but also about pressures that the SAMP may be coming under from Beijing and from the new owner of Hong Kong's storied paper of record, Alibaba. Tickets are $10 for China Institute members, $5 for students, and $20 for non-members. Look for the registration link on our website or in the SupChina newsletter and hope to see you in New York at the China Institute on Monday, October 9th. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day with our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course, straight from the tap at our website, subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I'm in Washington, D.C. for the first in a batch of podcasts we're recording from here in Beijing. Uh, joining me from his uncle's place in Austin, Texas. Are you at your uncle's place, Jeremy? I'm not right now. I mean, he lives in Austin, but we we are, in fact, staying nearby at an Airbnb because my parents are in town and there's a clan gathering. Uh, okay, well, that, of course, was Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, I, I trust you are enjoying at least a little fine Texas barbecue and some good music down there? Yes, and, of course, great uh, Tex-Mex food. Yeah. You make sure to try a place called The Salt Lick. It's a, a really kind of legendary barbecue place out there. Okay, I will. Anyway, I'll... So, Kaiser, I just wanted to, I just wanted to kind of uh, say something about SupChina.com. I think we got an email. I'm not sure if you saw it uh, earlier today or yesterday from somebody who's been listening to our podcast for a long time and had assumed that our website was SubChina as in Submarine. So I'd just like to make it clear for anyone listening. It's SupChina as in Supper or What's Up, um, not SubChina, because right. we're hopefully not... Uh, Right. We're China. Not, in fact, we're on top of it, as it were. Uh, <laughs> we are on top of <laughs> it. That's the whole idea. Well, <laughs> anyway, let's jump right in here now. Uh, last month, it emerged that the Cambridge University Press had acquiesced to a request from Beijing to censor a large number of articles and book reviews from one of the prestigious journals that it publishes, the China Quarterly. Uh, what happened next, at least as far as the headlines were concerned, was there were angry shouts from the ivory tower, and then Cambridge University Press reversed itself and made the blocked articles actually free to access to boot. Uh, one of the angry voices from the ivory tower belonged to our good friend Jim Millward, historian at Georgetown, in whose 
living room I now sit, uh, Jim, wrote one of the first angry responses to the Cambridge University Press's decision. And uh, since he caught the scent of blood for reasons I'm going to leave to him to explain, he's been hot on the trail, along with some other scholars whom censorship sleuths. Uh, And it turns out that what happened at the China Quarterly may have only been the tip of an iceberg and that the icy hand of censorship, to borrow a phrase from my friend Jeremy there, uh, had reached out for quite a number of other publishers and journals and even databases. So today we're delighted we back in your home, Jim, to explore this issue with you. So welcome back to Seneca, man. And welcome back to my home. You're always always welcome here, and I'm pleased to be on the show. Yeah, Shea Millward is my, my home away from home when I'm in Beijing. So, uh, let's... I, and thank you for having my voice uh, in your house, Jim. I appreciate that. Well, too. you're welcome too, Jeremy, anytime. Your disembodied voices. I know a lot of people find that rather annoying. So um... <laughs> I've never heard that. I think I, I love your voice. Um, anyway, let's start off by trying to get a sense of just what happened. Uh, this situation started off pretty straightforward, uh, at least from where I sit, uh, as one you know, accustomed to having to deal with censorship requests from the Chinese government because of my former job. Uh, but then it got a whole lot more involved. Um, at first, we were aware of just one academic journal, like China Quarterly, uh, but there, I guess there's more to it than just that, and we'll see. How did, how did you first learn, or how did you know, the public first learn that Cambridge had, had assented to this censorship request in the first place? Well, it was back in the middle of August, August 17th, and news went around on a sort of email list of, of China scholars that I'm on. Uh, and people said, hey, did you see Tom Pringle's letter? And Tom Pringle's the editor of the China Quarterly. And he had written a letter to the editorial board of that journal announcing that uh, Cambridge Press had been asked to remove some 300 articles from uh, the database version of the journal as it existed uh, in China. And it had agreed to do that. And so Tom Pringle provided a factual letter about this, um, but he also sort of expressed some opinion. You know, he obviously wasn't too pleased with this turn of events. And of course, when the China studies community heard about it, there was a lot of outcry that began sort of right away. Jim, can I interrupt at this point and just clarify that this censorship, it only applied to people accessing the database from within China without a VPN, right? It was, they didn't actually delete anything available to people outside of China. Right. What I gathered was going, see, I was not in China to check it. Ian Johnson, the uh, New York Times reporter, uh, did try to get to some things, but I'm not sure if he actually had the you know, the exact circumstances where this would apply, which would be, I believe, someone in a Chinese university, a university that subscribes to Cambridge's database, then trying to go in and get it, you know, as part of the articles that Cambridge would have provided. So no, Cambridge wasn't cutting it from the the database as generally available uh, outside of China. This was just for, for within China. So August 17th, Pringle's letter goes out and you guys all, all see a copy of this. And then, so then, sort of various things happen. It was it's kind of interesting because this is a story of a new development in, I suppose, the you know the ongoing narrative of Chinese uh, censorship. I suppose um, it's also a story of a very rapid international reaction from the academic community uh, to this news, and one that takes advantage of, uh, of of social media and various kinds of new internet tools, which I suppose university professors are not generally thought to be very savvy with. Um, but in any case, there was discussions. It came out uh, very soon after that. There was a, uh, a statement of dismay 
and disapproval, which was um, tweeted by uh, Jessica Chun Weiss and Greg Distelhorse, who are both China scholars. And by the next day, Saturday, there was also a petition going around, or sort of Friday and Saturday, somewhere in there, there was a petition uh, running around on change.org, which had been started by Christopher Balding, uh, who teaches uh, in China. Uh, and I wrote my sort of open letter on Saturday, and it got up there. So it was on various listservs that where China issues are discussed. So, Jim, do we know when the censorship request was actually made or, or anything about the internal process by which the decision to acquiesce was reached? Is there, is there one villain in this? So there's been various unclear reports. And one thing I want to speak more about in a minute maybe is sort of the general approach that Cambridge University Press has had on this. It, it hasn't been very transparent and what news has come out has, has dripped out and it's generally been leaked, and then they've begrudgingly uh, confirmed it. A story just came out in early September in The Guardian, in which a Cambridge Press uh, spokesman said that it was in uh, late July, early August, that the, you know, the touch first came in, that the request came in. Um, and it came from, as they put it, an, an importer who deals with the importing of products such as Cambridge's database, but that the importer had been uh, informed or, or required by China's general administration on press and publications right. uh, to, to make this request of Cambridge. So it sounds like this was a fairly recent, that is, you know, sort of midsummer kind of thing. But Tom Pringle's original letter implied that um, some months ago, Cambridge Press had already been asked and had complied to remove some 1,000 books from its uh, ebook marketplace in China. And we've heard no more about that, and Cambridge hasn't confirmed exactly what that is. There's been no list of that that's been released, but that was in Tom Pringle's original letter and is, is also of concern here. So was there any actual notification by China Quarterly or by the Cambridge University Press of the authors of these papers and and of these reviews, or of the the books that were originally for sale in the ebook marketplace, uh, that their works had been blocked or had been removed from the database. So, as far as I know, no, I had uh, I didn't have an article in China Quarterly that was affected, but uh, a book of mine, a review of a book of mine, was in that list, um, and I was not told anything about it. But as far as I know, no, they, either, didn't, yeah. they didn't correspond with the authors before making this decision, which is, of course, one of the things that was of great concern. But events were moving quite quickly. And by that Monday morning, Cambridge released another statement through Tom Pringle again, saying that, that Cambridge Press had reversed its decision to pull those 300 articles from the database of China Quarterly uh, and would restore them and would actually make that group of articles available free of charge somewhere on its database. Right. Were they free to those of us outside the Great Firewall? I have to say, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> check. I didn't check. More importantly, that, that's, that's, that's funny. Jim, how would you characterize the reaction from the scholarly community on this? Um, was it pretty unanimous in its criticism? Or were there people who were willing to defend the CUP decision? Well, that's a good question. I would say it was probably, it was strongly, you know, the majority of responses were that this was, you know, a very bad decision. Um, in uh, certainly the public response, the public responses were all, uh, you know, decrying the decision. Um, in some of the discussion, 
you know, people raised the issue that, well, this is a you know, tough situation that Cambridge is in. Um, and Cambridge itself, in its, in its first statement on this, um, it, it, it set up the issue this way. It said that in order to maintain the availability of the rest of its materials, uh, they had agreed to acquiesce to this demand to remove you know, a relatively small number of of articles, uh, and that's the kind of argument that we've heard. Yeah, it's the classic censorship conundrum, right? I, mean, I guess, yeah, and and you know, it, it's something that comes up in translations of books. Um, you know, if your book is going to be translated into Chinese, the Chinese press, you know, has a there's a reference to Tiananmen in there, or or you know, you say something about Deng Xiaoping, they feel that you can't publish with that. But if you take that out, the rest of the book can be published in Chinese. So yeah, there's, there's a decision there's a that- big debate over that a couple of years ago. We'll get into that yeah. um, later on, you know, when we get into sort of the more philosophical stuff. But let's let's first unpack what, what actually uh, happened here. Um, so, Jim, you're, you're a mild-mannered guy. I mean, uh, why did this particular issue grab a hold of you like it did? I mean, we were talking earlier, and you said something I thought was really interesting, that it, it's not really just about China, that, you know, if China somehow found a way to block or to deep-six the articles in question, you know, that would be regrettable, but it wouldn't prompt you to write an angry, open letter on Medium. So, what got you so steamed up? I mean, what what made you go all full Philip Marlowe on this? <laughs> well, a couple of things. I, if anyone reads my open letter... Uh, about this on Medium, you may think this is a, a distinction without a difference. But I do see myself as speaking really to Cambridge Press in this case, and by extension to academic institutions of all sorts outside of authoritarian areas, and not speaking so much to China and decrying Chinese censorship, which I obviously think is a bad idea. It's not good for Chinese scholarship and growing the, the importance of Chinese universities globally and so on and so forth. But this particular issue did get me fired up, as you said, because I've seen this kind of thing before in a variety of, of contexts. I have a personal history, which I think we've talked about on your podcast before, of having visas blocked because of my participation in a book about Xinjiang. And again, it was regrettable, and I was very upset that the Chinese foreign ministry chose not to give me a visa on a couple of occasions. But I was really upset with my own institution, Georgetown University, for what I saw as a very lame reaction. And not just Georgetown, but several universities, because there was a, a bunch of scholars who were involved at the exact same time. And at, the Xinjiang, what was the this number? This is the so-called Xinjiang 13, 13, which really doesn't right. involve 13, but people who had written in a book edited by Frederick Starr, called Xinjiang, China's Muslims Frontier. Uh, and this was now some 15 years ago or so. I've written about that uh, in a piece with China Beat. People can look up. It's called uh, Being Blacklisted in China and What I Learned from It. But th that experience sort of showed me a couple of things. Uh, I felt very strongly at the time that a robust collective response by the universities involved, Georgetown, MIT, Dartmouth, Miami University of Ohio, there were some you know, big name universities, would definitely have, have changed the situation. But there was no interest on the part of any of our administrations in our universities to do anything about that. And within my own university, we had just started, uh, had just embarked upon a relationship with the Chinese party school. And I suggested at the time that, well, if we know these people in the party school, there's some potential guanxi there, there's some connections there. Why don't we see what they say? And I was told at the time that it was a non-starter. We hear these stories about campuses in China or concerns about Confucius Institutes and so on. I also heard just last year of a case of a uh, American citizen student at an American university, but 
of Uyghur descent. And she had actually been the best Chinese student in her Chinese class, which was sponsored by a Confucius Institute in the U.S. She won the scholarship for a semester study uh, in China uh, of Chinese. And she actually learned Chinese here. She didn't start speaking it. But once her visa application went in with the other students, she never got any, she never got visa back, never got any news. She simply wasn't able to take up this scholarship. Wow. And uh, her university, you know, she asked what's up, you know, and the time for her to go and matriculate came and went. Um, and her university basically said, geez, I'm sorry, nothing we can do. And she couldn't even attend classes at her own home institution here in the U.S. because, you know, the time to register and so on had gone by. She was basically just condemned to, you know, sit out a semester. This is ridiculous. So I heard about this and... Um, uh, oh, is there evidence to suggest that it was just because, I mean, she had a, a recognizably Uyghur the, surname? The other or... students from the university and others on that scholarship program all got their visas and went. Wow. And, you know, you have to put down on your application if you have relatives in China and who your relatives are and that, that kind of information. So, the you know, the speculation, or not speculation, the, the pretty reasonable conclusion, assumption, yeah. assumption is that it was because of her Uyghur background. Okay. So anyway, uh, th- you know, this reaction, which simply was basically to say tough luck. Again, one can deplore China doing it, but the American institution actually could have done something else about it. And in the end, a bunch of us wrote letters and um, we we, kept it pretty quiet, but the student was able to go and do a program in Taiwan instead, and the university paid for it. So in any case, so that crystallized another issue for me too, and that is that the academic institutions themselves, be they universities, be they publishers, as in the case of Cambridge Press, uh, be they grant agencies, do have a way to do something when these things come up, not simply to, to shrug. And that is to try and find workarounds, try and find ways in which they can help the student or the researcher to carry out some kind of valuable research, maybe not in China, or maybe not using the particular materials or, you know, whatever the case is, but should be actively thinking of ways to do that. And this would not necessarily undermine their own, you know, China engagement. So in in the case of a publisher like Cambridge Press, obviously to actively acquiesce to cutting your own materials, there should be other ways in which they could handle the situation. Right. Right, right. I mean, they're obliged to. It's not just that they can. They, they really well, ought exactly, to. Well, exactly, right. right. And, and that's, of course, you know, that's, that's sort of leaving aside the broader issue of, you know, academic freedom um, in general and a renowned institution such as Cambridge University and its press should not be involved in censoring at all. Jim, can we talk about the content of the articles and book reviews uh, that were identified by the Chinese authorities for removal? Uh, there's been a, some analysis of the pieces. W- what did it show? As many of your listeners might expect, uh, there were certain topics, you know, the kind of old standard topics that uh, seemed to be the ones that were singled out. So um, The three T's and an F. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and, and a few more, right? So, so uh, Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Xinjiang uh, issues and Uyghur issues, obviously Dalai Lama, certain articles about Chinese leaders uh, and about elite politics. And that was pretty much uh, the list. So no, no huge surprises there, huh? No huge, no huge surprises. No, I mean, one, one was the Cultural Revolution. Cultural, is, excuse me, that was is, a big one as well. Yeah, yes. that, that was an odd one, though. I mean, they're, they're, this is the first time I've seen them get quite so 
prickly over over discussion of the Cultural Revolution, which I thought mm-hmm, was. Mm-hmm. And one thing that emerged from from that is that it it's pretty clear that this list was generated initially uh, simply by keyword searches, right? Right on the database, and that raises another issue too. But sort of the ease in which this kind of thing can be done now in in a digital space. So what's interesting is how this expanded beyond just the China Quarterly. So let's talk about some of the other journals and some of the other databases that were that you discovered along the way were were actually being asked to censor as well, and what their reactions were. Right. So uh, on that, you know, that that Monday after this came out, Cambridge reversed itself, uh, and that same day we found out that the Journal of Asian Studies, which is the flagship journal of the Association of Asian Studies, um, which is the largest American academic association dealing with Asia, and it has a lot of international reach as well, that their journal too, which is also published by Cambridge Press, had been asked to remove some 100 articles from, from the database, or that Cambridge had told JAS that it had been asked. In this case, it seems that the articles had not actually been removed yet, and Cambridge reversed itself you know, right at that same time. Uh, but again, Cambridge didn't tell us this. It came out from the board of the Journal of Asian Studies itself. So you know, one really would have wished that once it reversed itself, Cambridge had just come clean, had you know, thrown open the shades and told us everything that was going on. But they didn't do that. You had to drag it out of them. Well, this finally came out after a lot of discussion from the board of the Association of Asian Studies themselves. And they... You know, they took some time to do it. Uh, I was a little critical on Twitter of, of them, but I understand their concerns. They didn't want to just throw out, you know, this list of, of, of articles. So instead, they released a analysis of the topics of the articles that had been on the list. Um, and that was, uh, I presume, to protect some of the authors, perhaps, from kind of secondary persecution. Obviously, the list was generated in China. So someone in China you know, knew this list, and arguably having it republished abroad wouldn't make that much difference. But China is not a monolith, and so you know the general administration of press and publications would not be sending this list around to local units in China. And this is actually an important thing um, to remember, that when this kind of censorship happens, or when a visa block happens, or something like that at a central level, it's not common knowledge even among people in the same you know, right. business around China. It's actually kept very close to the chest uh, in those central uh, organs that do it. That's right. So JAS was, was involved, and they finally you know, admitted it. I was asking around trying to see if any other uh, journals J- were involved. JAS being the Journal of Asian Studies. Journal of Asian right, Studies right, right. was involved. They never actually pulled those articles, but they had been asked to. As far as we know, the China Journal, which is another prominent journal of contemporary Chinese studies, was not asked to remove any articles. So they are published by Chicago University Press. And again, as far as we know, they did not they were not subjected to this kind of demand from GAPP. But we, we figure found, the Brits cave easily. <laughs> well, I think there's various reasons for this. I, um, possibly Chicago doesn't have the kind of large presence. Right. Um, the, you know, publishing and in particular, you know, e-marketing presence in China that the Cambridge, Cambridge has, does, right. right? It's more or less an academic press. Sh- what what about like LexisNexis or So LexisNexis, there was a very brief report from Reuters. Uh, it came out, again, a few days after all of this broke. 
And they said that they had been asked to remove articles from their database back in March of 2017. And in response to that, they had not agreed, but they had ended up removing two of their products from the Chinese marketplace. So LexisNexis has various ways of slicing and dicing its legal and news databases. They removed Nexus and LexisNexis. So that means they removed the news the standalone news database and the legal plus news database. Right. Sounds like they left the legal database and they may have other products as well. I was trying to get uh, more information on this. I was particularly interested in how exactly LexisNexis was asked to remove articles because it's one thing to go to Cambridge University Press or to, to a journal to go through their you know, to do a keyword search on the words in titles and abstracts and generate a list of articles. But to do that for LexisNexis, which has many, many times more pieces in their database, that would be a huge list. And so I was curious to see whether they had actually been asked to block certain keywords directly. Um, I haven't heard back from their communications people at LexisNexis, though, despite repeated calls. So, so how would you view something like this? I mean, the decision to just just remove whole categories of product. I mean, is that a principled stand or is it another form of acquiescence? Well, again, that was something I would have liked to hear. Um, their their state, LexisNexis's statement was very carefully worded and they didn't want to get into details of this interaction. Nobody seems to, but I think those details would be very useful to yeah, know. Yeah, but um, whether they were... Was this a case of, you know, I'm going to break up with you before you break up with me? <laughs> uh, did they remove it before it was banned? Or did they take a principled stance? If they did, they didn't announce it, right? The, the news kind of dripped out from them as well. I mean, it's really interesting. And this is the thing that you're asking what gets me fired up. You can hear me getting fired up now. It's this the, is Jim fired up. Huh? It's the... Can you tell? Yeah. <laughs> the levels aren't moving on your on your microphone. Uh, they microphone. are. They are. They really are. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to have to, I mean, it's clipping all over the place. And I'm going to have to. <laughs> but this is what gets me fired up. That is that these institutions seem so unwilling to, you know, put their head above the parapet and say anything about this uh, and actually reveal what's going on. Um, and I think if they did that, and particularly if they did that collectively, looked around and found out who else was affected, that this could really be a strong deterrent against future requests like this because... Perry Link wrote an interesting piece in the New York Review of Books a few days ago uh, in which he talked about how censorship is done uh, within the publishing world in China. And he pointed out that a phone call is the usual vector, right? The authorities will make a phone call to the editor of, of a publication and say, don't publish such and such or don't talk about such and such. Uh, they don't want a paper trail of these particular uh, requests. And so the very act of you know, revealing that paper trail or that email trail or that process whereby the demand was delivered to foreign institutions by the importer, revealing that would actually also be very, very helpful because, you know, ripping the Band-Aid off and throwing open the shades would, you know, let more sunshine and oxygen uh, in on this. So, so Jim, as a professor of history whose focus has been on Qing and Asia, I mean, you're obviously no stranger to the way that academics can be uh, you know, highly political. And, and and in fairness, this isn't something at all unique to the CCP. So l let's get into the sort of the deeper, the whys. And I know that you're, you're not a specialist on elite politics, and I know that this touches on it. But 
it seems, well, I think it's pretty clear they've been a whole lot more heavy-handed in recent years. I mean, the level of censoriousness has risen uh, a lot, and it's been often directed at, at the universities. Uh, there's that famous document number nine, which started talking about the teaching of universal values in, in the Chinese classroom. And, and and there's been a lot of that recently that, that we've all read about, specifically with history. History is just such an easily politicized thing in China as, as elsewhere. But uh, recently, you have this charge of historical nihilism constantly being thrown around by the party faithful. Why do you suppose it's gotten worse? I mean, do you have any any kind of working theory as to what's 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 happening here i mean is it just that the walls that used to sort of effectively separate communities of scholars between china and the outside world have gotten a whole lot more porous or have come down or is it just this whole internet thing what what do you what do you think is is yeah well so obviously this seems to be part of a pattern broader pattern of uh the xi jinping's government's you know crackdown on academic freedoms and press freedoms and and so on. I think with, like the decision now to really go after VPNs, like the sort of ratcheting up of kind of controls in general, uh, I think some of it may be that there's a technological cat and mouse game. And at this point, the cat has a bit of the upper hand or an upper paw, and that there are more you know, sort of stronger abilities to actually restrict for example, access to VPNs. The Jello nailing technology has been perfected. <laughs> yeah, so th- there might be some of that. And I think here with regard to uh, the Cambridge Press database, uh, clearly this was, you know, uh, someone realized that they could quite easily uh, come up with a list of sensitive terms and use it to create a list of sensitive articles and then uh, ask Cambridge to do that. More broadly, though, I think th- there might be perhaps greater anxiety in China about the you know, the very openness of its academic system or or about the openness of its academic system that in fact has been created by China's investment into that academic system over the last few years huh so the universities the are now success, yeah. you know one of the one of the metrics whereby uh, the the growth and the improvement uh, of Chinese universities and of Chinese scholarship in general is, is measured. Of published papers, right? Published papers, published papers in, in English. international journals, right. right? Participation in international conferences. All of these things are are wonderful, and of course, our Chinese colleagues now can you know travel abroad pretty much as easily as we can travel to China, sometimes more easily. So there really is opening up a much more unified sphere. But those pesky flies and mosquitoes come in, right? Well, right, but people are coming out of the house as well, right? right. The, the doors and windows are open, and you know, maybe flies, mosquitoes are coming in, but you know, people can go outside. The domestic flies are excited. Exactly. So we could take that metaphor you know, too far, I guess. But <laughs> we already have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, you know, again, this is simply speculating. So I think part of it is simply the because we can answer, and then uh, the increasing globalization and internationalization of scholarship in China and English ability and so on. You know, that said, in its brief piece about, or a brief op-ed about this, Global Times itself said, these are just a few articles in China Quarterly that no one really reads anyway. <laughs> Which some people have said, you know, oh, a bunch of book reviews, who reads them anyway? So, you know, so th- there is this kind of question, why 
Why the battle about this? So, Jim, yeah, let, let's let's focus in on that a little bit. I mean, this is an obscure journal <laughs> read by some eggheads. It has a much lower circulation than my Twitter account. Um, you know, why is Beijing getting so bothered over this? And maybe you can talk a little bit about why history and historiography matter so much in China today, and apparently mm -hmm. especially to um, this leadership. First of all, the technological question um, Sure, China quarterly itself probably has a very small circulation, uh, but once it's part of these broader databases, such as that of Cambridge Press, such as that of JSTOR, ProQuest, all of these, which Chinese universities now are subscribing to, the question of circulation of an individual journal is no longer important. Access to these articles is there when you search on the broader database. So, so there may be something you know about about that that's responsible for this. Mm. Um, the importance of history, obviously, I would say more than any other society. I suppose one could find some other examples here or there, but more than any other society, any other culture, uh, you know, China Chinese culture has used history to legitimate the present leadership, um, and we can see these fights going on in you know the earliest of Chinese historical sources. Um, you know, the arguments that we see in you know, Confucian scholar, Confucius and Mencius and so on, in particular in the writing of Sima Chen, often known as the, you know, the father of history in China. Uh, it's all about commentary on the present, often using the past to do that. Uh, and so you know, I, this is one thing which anyone who's studied you know, any Chinese history at all can see very, very clearly that um, it matters arguably much more, say, than history does uh, in the United States. Although, of course, right now we're in a moment when we're arguing about our, our recent history very intensely. We, we flicked earlier about um, the sort of discussion over when censorship may be justifiable or, or acquiescence to censorship may be justifiable, as with the authors of books who've agreed to some censorship so that their works get translated into English, removing that page that talks about the Tiananmen demonstrations and, and the crackdown. Are you a censorship absolutist? And if, if not, and I assume you're not, where do you, how do you figure out the line? How does one come to, you know, I mean, how do you calibrate your compass? Well, that's a good question. And I can't say I have an absolute answer to it right now. You know, we all make compromises. If you're in someone's living room talking with them, you might not speak as frankly as you would, uh, you know, if they're not in the room. And so if I'm giving a paper in China, I am very aware of, uh, my host's position, you know, I'm going to say things in a certain way. So is that self-censorship? Should I decry myself for it? Or is that simply being discreet? Or is that being polite? So everybody has these issues. I think, though, well, there's an easy tendency with this case, or with the case, for example, of Confucius Institutes, for us to see and characterize these changes, or the, the intensifying urge to censor in China, as this kind of icy hand, as you put it in, in, in your introduction, this kind of black shadow, you know, seeping out of China and threatening over, uh, threatening to take over the rest of the world. And I think that's actually the least concern right now. To be sure, if databases are our global repository of knowledge, we don't want to have faulty versions of them floating around. But I think we're, you know, a ways away from that. I think the real thing to be concerned about and the way to think about this is from the point of view or you know, for the sake of our Chinese colleagues. Uh -huh. And so um, I tried to make that point in, in my open letter that to say that, well, for Chinese colleagues, it's good enough 
to have a you know, scissored up version of the database. It's okay to, to argue that half a loaf is good enough. I think this really shows a, a great disdain or, or sort of disrespect for uh, Chinese scholars. Yeah, it's it's, it's condescension. It's very condescending. So, but but isn't there maybe some postmodern critique that would say there's, you know, some relative power relationship that allows the West to privilege its own supposedly objective narrative through this insistence on academic freedom and, and freedom of information uh, that's sort of analogous to the way that it's always the rich trading nations that insist on, on free trade. I mean, that that you're dressing this up as freedom of information, but in fact, what you're doing is is pushing a version of history. Information imperialism, I think, is the term has been used in China. Information right. imperialism, right. And, and um, the Global Times editorial about this actually uh, sort of raised this in very stark terms and said there's, you know, there's a Western way and there's a Chinese way and we'll see which one wins in the end. And they asserted that th this whole notion of academic freedom was part of a package of institutions and norms that had been imposed by the West and the rest of the world you know, in the age of imperialism. That's a very tendentious reading of history because you know the age of imperialism uh, was full of attempts to crack down on academic freedom uh, outside of uh, well in the West as well. This is an ongoing fight, not simply with uh, you know Asian or Eastern powers or third world powers. It's an ongoing fight within the West itself, and I think that if anything is a universal value, then the ability to you know, think freely, to write freely, to express yourself freely you know, is going to be that because it works against all kinds of abuses of power. And not only that, uh, it's not at all hard to find uh, expressions of academic freedom, desire for academic freedom, for freedom of, of speech and writing and so on within the Chinese tradition itself. There's the first emperor of China who wanted to burn the books and bury the scholars. There's Hao Di who wanted to cut off Sima Qian's nards, right? Well, and then there's Sima Chen who ended up uh, allowing his nards, as you so delicately put it, to be cut off uh, in order to continue his history, in which he found ways to you know, make his political points uh, indirectly. And, you know, if that's very much a academic freedom position, um, you know, or, or, or Chu Yuan, you know, the great poet uh, who drowned himself in the South. There are many examples of this. So this is not a Western value. This well, yeah, is a, yeah, but it, a human it never value. has had sort of institutional expression in China. It's always been the outlier position. It's never been sort of formalized. It's never been a part of any of any actual functional state. I mean, that's that's right. What the, it has the, not, and it's not there. You know, on the mastheads and right. Um, Although, you know, I, I spent a year as a special student doing dissertation research at, at Renda, at, at People's, uh, I guess it's called Renmin University in Beijing. And if you go in through the main gate, and I think it's still there now, there's a big rock, uh, which is carved with four characters, painted green, not red, that says, shi shi qiu shi, seek truth through facts, which seems to me a pretty clear statement of precisely the kind of value that I'm, uh, I'm supporting here. Jim, don't you think that the reason that you're so excited about this, and I also feel fairly strongly about this, is that the Cambridge University Press and you know other organizations that may or may not have acquiesced to self-censorship, um, it's not a company. I mean, if you think of you know LinkedIn, for example, censoring what's available on, on their Chinese version of the site and other internet companies, it's very understandable. This is a for-profit company whose 
primary duty is to its shareholders and its 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 profits. I, I think of Peter Hessler talking about these slightly bowdlerized versions of his books published in China, which don't bother me in the slightest because, you know, what makes a Peter Hessler book isn't the commentary on the Chinese government and the Communist Party. It's the record of uh, life as it's lived by Chinese people that he, that he's experienced. But when it comes to an academic institution uh, or an academic publisher like Cambridge University Press, surely their uh, raison d'etre is the pursuit of knowledge and truth. And therefore, to, to censor is a, a complete... Um, negation of what they're supposed to stand for. That's very different from a company or a commercial publisher. Isn't that what is the real I'm problem? I'm surprised you're letting companies off the hook so easily there, Jeremy, though. I mean, I, I would, I still expect companies to at least consider that, what, that triple bottom line or whatever. Well, uh, yeah, companies maybe should consider it, but I mean, a company is, is founded to make money. You know, it's very clear. So I, I, I'm not saying they should censor, but if they don't, that's part of their their animal nature because they are for-profit institutions and the decisions that they make will inevitably be guided at least partly by the pursuit of profit. Whereas the Cambridge University Press is not such an institution. It's supposed to be for the right, and pursuit you know, of as knowledge. Are all, uh, so-called academic institutions. Um, I, I absolutely agree with you, Jeremy. Um, I know that there are many you know, university administrators and people who work for university presses and so on who are very concerned about their bottom lines as well, right? So obviously they find themselves in difficult situations. This this raises a broader issue of corporatization of, hmm, uh, of right. academic institutions in general, one which John Fitzgerald has written about in a very interesting piece in the Financial Review about sort of Australian universities and how a sort of corporatization, particularly of management, um, replacing faculty governance with you know, business style governance in the university system has made the Australian universities solvent over the past uh, several years in a way that they weren't before. But at the same time, it has kind of conditioned them to fall into these sorts of dilemmas in dealing with China in a way that if they remembered their values as a, quote unquote, pure academic institution, they might not have, have done. So, I mean, for me, it's it's just a function of how big the compromise is and how much good can come of compromise and how much opportunity for good is 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 given up by refusing to compromise. And so, I mean, I can come to a very different conclusion about what the Cambridge University Press did versus what the American Bar Association did, a very different opinion as to whether it was a good thing that Google left China or whether it's a good thing that Facebook, you know, is trying to get into China. I can, I, I, I do come to very different conclusions on all of these just based on that own, that, that, that sort of a calculus. What is the downside here though? What's the cost? What, what's the opportunity cost of, of taking this principled stance? Um, you know, well, maybe this belatedly principled stance. I mean, does, do any of these database operators or does the press or any of these, are they going to lose uh, the opportunity to to do some good to reach well there's you know there's various costs um there's the cost which cambridge claimed it was trying to avoid when it initially acquiesced to, acquiesced to this demand uh, and that is that other of their products or their database entirely you know they'd be completely banned from china i i think they were far too fretful 
uh, about that. And I think that's very often the case that you know a university you know is worried to speak up about you know if one of its professors is blocked or something like that. They're afraid that China's going to you know kick them out of Shanghai um, and they'd lose their new campus or whatever. I, I think Western institutions worry about that far far too much. Jeremy, how does your calculus work on this stuff? I mean, I I think if you're not a full profit company, um, then you should not acquiesce to censorship. Um, I think if you're a for profit company, I think yeah. things get much more complicated uh, because I think you have a, a, a duty to your shareholders. Um, and I think that's what you're set up for. That's why you set up a for profit company. Would you favor Facebook doing whatever it takes to get into China then? No, not necessarily. I'm just saying that it, it's understandable and that not that you shouldn't criticize it if they do it, but that there are where um, I can understand it. Uh, and I can see that the situation That's is very complicated. <laughs> well, I think you also have to ask yourself, you know, what is Facebook selling versus what are university presses selling, right? And as you, both of you have pointed out in some of your earlier um, podcasts about this, uh, there are good alternatives to Facebook in China. So from the Chinese point of view, they can do perfectly well without without Facebook, I think. I don't know if you still believe that, but I've certainly heard you say that before. No, I, I still do believe it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Th- yes, they can. In fact, I could do perfectly well without <laughs> Facebook if I, I could well, only convince true. the that's rest true. of the planet to do without right. it. I, right, but, access, I hate but Facebook, access... But- you know, access to the world's, you know, research and social sciences, humanities and sciences is, is not something we think anybody should really have to, you know, have to do, do with that. that. Yeah. And another thing, I mean, I agree with Jeremy that you know, universities and university presses and similar institutions, they are not for profit. They are concerned about making money, unfortunately, they have to be. But there's another kind of economy that that functions very very strongly for universities and professors and academic publications and that's a prestige economy um, and you know when I publish a book with an academic press I don't make any money off of it or very rarely does anyone make money off of academic books but we do gain a lot in terms of recognition right and if you publish with a well-known press, respected press such as Cambridge, then you gain in status. And in fact, this is actually how hiring and promotion is done within the academy. Uh, it's not on the basis of you know, how, mu- how, how much, much money, money you make. <laughs> no, certainly not. You know, it is, aha, respected press, peer review, all of this is providing this, you can call it recognition or or prestige or whatever you want. But that's really the currency which we function with. And that's what Cambridge was squandering by agreeing to censor its own product and was also disrespecting the concerns of its own authors, uh, as well as disrespecting the concerns of of potential readers and authors in China. As far as I know, there hasn't been an official reaction uh, in China to the Cambridge decision to reverse itself. Aside from, you know, a predictably silly piece that Kaiser mentioned in the Global Times, and, you know, the Global Times is not you know, the official voice of China by any means, although it certainly represents a lot of opinions that you will hear from party members, but th- there doesn't seem to have been an official reaction. I think reaction. there was something or, like, or, of the, like that. I just what do you make of this? looking today, and um, it was an article in The Guardian from, I think, September 8th, which uh, was quoting a statement from the Chinese State Council. And they didn't refer specifically to Cambridge Press, uh, but they said that that information coming in from outside uh, had to fit the norms of of China and the demands of China, uh, and that importers uh, needed to you know, make sure that 
I've forgotten the term of art that they use, but a dangerous information was not was not important. So I think there was an indirect statement from the state council level, which is quite interesting. We can yeah, look that up. I'll, I'll, if we find it, we'll put it on the, uh, on, on the page. Well, I did want to mention that besides China Quarterly and the Journal of Asian Studies, the American Political Science Review was also uh, on the block, as it were, for some 27 articles. And this only came out very belatedly um, in the last in the last few days, uh, and again, I'm I'm concerned that uh, Cambridge University Press hasn't made it you know, clear exactly the extent of you know what this ask to censor was. Um, I think it's really incumbent upon them to you know reveal how far did it go, what journals were involved. And all of that sort of information. Yeah, there's been just just a pitiably small amount of, of transparency from many of these publishers. That's really kind of pathetic. Jim, we're going to make sure to put a link to your excellent open letter uh, that you wrote on Medium. And uh, thanks, Todd, for being so generous with your time. I mean, I'm sure this story is going to play out over the next couple of, well, months and years. And, and we'll revisit it again. I mean, and this and, and so many other permutations of this same kind of, you know, uh, censorship conundrum. But uh, again, before uh, we pack up the gear here, let's do some recommendations. What do you say? Sure. All right. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook, which Jeremy hates, at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. Recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Uh, well, firstly, I love all of you on Facebook. It's just I don't really like Facebook. But I'm there and I use it. So my recommendation is connected to today's topic. It's uh, a book by uh, my old teacher, J.M. Kutsia, who is a South African novelist, well, now Australian, who has won the Nobel Prize. Um, he, there's a, a really wonderful book of essays called Giving Offense, Essays on Censorship uh, by J.M. Kutsia. So that's how you say his um, name. I was just thinking it, the same thing. Know, he, he, Kutsia. I've always said Kutsi. Yeah, <laughs> you say Kutsia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Americans usually say Kutsi, but it's Kutsia. J.M. Kutsia, uh, he wrote his, I think, most important works as an Afrikaans white South African under apartheid. Um, and, you know, we had, you know, when I was growing up, a system that was not dissimilar to China in terms of censorship. Um, our, our government actually was so extreme that we didn't have television until I think it was 1978, because the government were worried that communist and satanic influences would uh, destroy the minds of the people. So uh, he knows of what he talks. Uh, giving offense, essays on censorship by Jam Kutsia. That's an excellent recommendation. I'll, I'll check that out. Uh, Jim, what do you have for us? Well, keeping with the subject of today's discussion, there is an interesting uh, exchange between Evan Osnos and Peter Hessler. Um, Peter Hessler wrote a nice piece in The New Yorker called Travels with My Censor, which really lays out the complexity of the issue. In his case, it was decisions about his book. Um, and oh, that's wonderful, Jim, because that, that's the, the essay I was referring to earlier. Where, where, where right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. And in, and in this case, the, uh, you know, the censor is actually a very sympathetic individual. Yeah, very much. Uh, and I've had some dealings. One of my books was translated recently, and um, I had to have some sort of 
uncomfortable conversations. Not which, about which, which one? My Silk Road book. Oh, okay. Not about content because there was nothing in there, you know, sensible. But frankly, whether I should give a little book tour when I was in China recently, and it was decided that because sort of iffy that I would get a visa or not, uh, it would be better if I didn't do a public uh, appearance like that. And I, you know, said fine. Right. So my so that one of the recommendations is, is travels with my with my with my sensor, um, and then there's sort of a response. And, and, and Hessler, as we've said, um, you know, decided to allow a small number of of cuts in the translation of his book, so that the book as a whole, you know, could circulate. And it was indeed very very popular, and I think you know interesting to to Chinese. And then uh, Evan Osnos, who also had a book about you know, contemporary China based on his reporting. He decided not to and wrote about it in an op-ed in the New York Times, which one can find, that is, not to publish in China and to accept censorship. Uh, and I think, you know, you were asking earlier, Kaiser, if this is an absolute matter, and I think they kind of lay out the sides of the consideration, you know, pretty well, but from the point of view of an author, right, not of a well, I think what Jeremy said in reference to this particular debate was really right on the mark. I mean, that you don't read a Peter Hessler book to see what he says about Tiananmen or to what he says about, I mean, about the uh, suppression of dissent or, or anything like that. You read the Hessler book because he takes you into the mind of an ordinary Chinese person. He, he's great at, at, at giving full color to the lived experience of being Chinese, of an ordinary schmuck in China. It's great. I mean, he's... He's and, and, and because the prose is so goddamn good. I mean, it's anyway, uh, there's also let me let me I have on one, the, more, on I have topic, one more recommendation. If let, I me, can. let me finish out with this one, because um, the, there's the Ian Johnson piece about Pete being, you know, in, in, and then there's our podcast. Uh, Jeremy and I talked to Ian about this this experience uh, and, and about the debate. And he's he's, of course, just such a. Uh, an insightful and sort of, you know, observant guy. Uh, he, he had a really great remarks. And so please revisit that podcast and we'll make sure to put a link. What up a to meta, that. what a, a meta, meta recommendation. <laughs> yeah, we're getting there, way out, way anyway. out there. Well, it's all on the same topic. It's all on the sort of the fabled Hessler Osnes debate, which isn't really a debate. I mean, I, I, right. again, I think neither of them would say that they've taken opposite. Uh, they, 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 the approaches that they take, are specific to the books that they've written, and and they're appropriate in each circumstance. I, I'm sorry, Jim. You had and another so this, recommendation. And so this is something not to do with censorship at all. It's a musical recommendation. Um, there's a young uh, Chinese uh, musician and composer uh, and performer named Bai Shui, uh, who Bai Kai Shui is his full name. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Bai, Bai Shui. So you can find him, you know, B A I S H U I, and he's on uh, Spotify and I believe iTunes in various places, and. Um, he's uh, Sichuanese. He sort of comes from a sort of Chinese uh, you know, folk music training background. He plays various kinds of flutes, but also guitars and things. But um, but also does abstract music and some electronica and avant-garde kinds of stuff. Some very interesting collaborations with uh, modern dancers. And so there's videos. So he's working in kind of multi, you know, sort of choreography and music. Um, and he's now here in the United States, living in Florida, I believe. And um, he's, he's performed at South by Southwest a few years ago. Um, so he's now here and kind of making his way. And um, in fact, Jeremy, I wanted to uh, mention him to your your wife at some point because uh, they might like be able they probably to, already know each other but they might yeah. yeah 
Great, great. Baishui. Check that out. Baishui. Okay. I, I will I will, I will. will tell her all about him if she doesn't know already. Excellent. I'm going to follow on with a, a musical recommendation. A couple of podcasts ago, I confessed to being a total progressive rock head. I was, I was talking about a, a new book uh, that... that about the genre of progressive rock. And then a lot of people have sort of contacted me since and saying, Hey, can you recommend some bands? And so that's what I'm going to do now. Uh, one is the band Porcupine Tree, uh, which is easily one of my favorite. It's, I mean, they're, you know, an update. They're sort of the neo prog, new progressive rock stuff. I mean, they were really active in the 1990s, but, uh, I would especially recommend the albums In Absentia and Dead Wing. And then also the solo albums by, you know, the heart and soul of Porcupine Tree, a guy named Stephen Wilson, uh, and two albums I'd single out to recommend for that uh, are The Raven That Refused to Sing and Other Stories and Hand Cannot Erase. Uh, he, he assembles just some of the most amazing musical talents out there. And these albums, not only are they just compositionally great and and the musicianship is top notch but the recording the the studio the the quality of the work is just so uh, just as uh, a product of a, of a studio it's it's like steely dan asia kind of quality of just sparkling and amazing and everything sounds as it ought to sound and it's just a joy to listen to for for you uh people who are into the hi-fi stuff so uh great Jim, man, once again, thanks so much for having us here, uh, me in, in, in corporeal form, and and Jeremy is a disembodied voice. Uh, Always Jeremy. happy to speak with both of you, <laughs> even if you're just disembodied or bodied. Jeremy, man, good to talk to you. I'll see you soon. I trust. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, y'all, y'all take care. Yeah, y'all take care too. Well, actually, I guess you're not in Yankee Land if you're in DC, but yeah, it's the South. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at SubChina News. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.